This is KAOS. You and I are listening to Chaos in Australia. Let's go to the telephones now and take a request. Yes, Billy. You hear radio waves in your head. Ah, is there a request that you have tonight for chaos? My name's Brendan O'Brien, and welcome to the Astrophys podcast. The title of today's podcast is Dr. Lisa Harvey-Smith Constructing a Home Radio Telescope on a Budget, Radio Silent Zones, and National Science Week. Each session will have co-presenters, we'll have a special guest in both the professional and amateur fields of radio astronomy, we'll have a news roundup, have a history and theory session from Nadezhda, and we'll talk to her very soon. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky when we talk with Dr Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Let's begin by crossing straight over to Tver in Russia and speaking with Professor Nadezhda Shcherbakov. Hello, Nadezhda. Good morning, Brendan. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Nadezhda. How are you? I am fine. What are you going to tell us about today? We are going to look at pulsars. And that is going to include some very interesting story, just like our friend Rosalind Franklin was cheated out of a Nobel Prize by Crick and Watson. Today, I'm going to tell you about another person who was cheated, and that is Dame Susan Jocelyn Belburnell, who was an astrophysicist, and as a postgraduate student, she was the person who first discovered radio pulsars. Now, she discovered pulsars while she was studying for her PhD under her supervisor, Anthony Hewish, for which... Hewish shared the Nobel Prize in Physics with Martin Ryle. Meanwhile, it was actually Bell who was excluded from the Nobel, despite she having been the first to observe and then precisely analyse the pulsars. There you go, Brendan. 
Though I think the situation is getting a little better, as referred to by that young PhD you interviewed last week. Uh, Karen Lee Waddell, that's right. Yes, well, I hope you're both right, Nadezhda. Look, stay online and listen to this next interview with one of Australia's preeminent astrophysicists and great science communicators. We'll be hearing an interview with Dr. Lisa Harvey-Smith. Okay, Brendan, I'll listen in. Now, this interview, Nadezhda, is from Australia's national broadcaster, ABC Radio, and they have a segment called ABC RN Drive. That's Radio National Drive, and that's hosted by Patricia Cavallis. So we'll go and have a listen to that. And if our listeners want to listen to the original broadcast, unedited, they can go to tonyearl.com forward slash astrophyslisa, all lowercase, all one word. Here we go. Tapes rolling, as they used to say in the olden days. It's time to step into the online shoes of someone new. Dr. Lisa Harvey-Smith is an astronomer with the CSIRO. She's a prolific tweeter. And, well, I just said it, she's an astronomer, which is kind of a rock star title. Hello. Hey. You helped celebrate a hashtag Children's Day last week. That's the hashtag for the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children's Day. Tell me how you got involved. Well, yeah, it's, it was a great event. We went down to Canberra to Questacon, actually, to celebrate Children's I Day. I love that place. It's fantastic. It's If you haven't been there, get down there. You can just poke everything, basically. It's a science museum, hands-on. Everything's hands-on. It's it's probably full of germs, but I'm, I'm sure it's wonderful. It, it was a great event last Thursday. We were celebrating the connection between the huge telescope project that I'm involved in to build the world's most powerful telescope here in Australia. It's in a remote region of Western Australia in Wadri Yamaji country. So the traditional owners of that land on which we're building the telescope and us at CSIRO have a great connection together. So we have a number of activities that we do together. I often go out to from Sydney all the way out to this remote region uh, with some colleagues and we go into the local school. It's a very small community. So do you get those kids involved in in the project and talking about it? Are they really an essential part of they are, yeah. It's a great partnership because we, we do loads of stuff with the kids. We actually take them every year on a school trip to the telescope. Oh, and I most, want to come. I know. Come. Most professional scientists can't go to the telescope. The thing about the telescope is it's very remote and we want to keep it like that. We don't want to have any pollution from computers, from humans, from cars, that kind of stuff. So we keep everyone away. These kids we take every year to the telescope and their elders were actually involved in naming all of the telescopes as well on the site. So we've got a great connection with the Wadri Amaji people and these kids from the remote community community were actually brought over to Canberra for a week and we celebrated Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children's Day on Thursday. So it was wonderful. These kids got great opportunities. They met partner schools, kids from Canberra. They saw the snow for the first time. They actually went tobogganing and Did they? Uh, snowboarding and stuff. They were quite good at it. The good side of being a freezing place. Absolutely So what's great. the telescope for? Well, we don't understand everything in our universe. Thank God, because I'd be out of a job. Yeah, um, yeah. You, need, you need some things unanswered. Yeah, we've only got Naked eye, you can only see 3,000 stars. With telescopes, you can see millions of stars. With a giant radio telescope that we're peering through the history of the universe with, we're going to understand more and more about the history, structure, and the content of our universe to understand fundamental physics, what gravity is. We don't know what gravity is. We don't understand it properly. We don't understand the particles called dark matter that make up our universe. We don't understand the expansion of our universe and what is going to happen in the future, whether we're all going to expand and expand forever and the universe will be cold and 
frequency in dark, or if there's going to be a big crunch, which is the opposite of a big bang, and everything will crunch down to one point and we'll all be crushed together. So all of that sounds quite uh, ominous. You're freaking me out here. uh, It's not for a while, so don't worry. All right, the National Science Week begins tomorrow. The science community on Twitter are getting louder in anticipation, and I love watching it. How will you be participating, celebrating? Well, yeah, National Science Week, over 2,000 events right across Australia. NatSci Week has already been all over Twitter. It's not even started yet. Um, Yesterday, I helped to open the Sydney Science Festival, which was a great part of National Science Week. And we had an event at the Powerhouse Museum. There were over a 1,000 people came. And they've got hands-on exhibitions. There were people dancing their PhD, believe it or not, interpretive dance. Yeah, look, hey, we've had people on the show who are talking about dancing their PhD. I'm on to this. These are winners. These people were winners. So we're bringing in arts and science. Um, There's a great exhibition as well called the um, Collider Exhibition. It's an immersive experience. It's like being in the Large Hadron Collider, this massive atom smasher in Europe that helped to discover the Higgs boson. So there's all sorts of stuff going on. It's brilliant. And a quick scroll of your Twitter feed, that's what we do here, surveillance, Mm. uh, shows you've been retweeting videos and photos of the Mars rover. Yeah. Why are you so excited about this? Well, I love Mars because... I think I love I love the history of the space program. The Apollo astronauts really, really inspire me. I've met a couple of them recently and it's incredible that they're all getting to such an age that, you know, soon there won't be any humans alive, frankly, that have walked on other celestial bodies. Next is Mars. NASA's going to go to Mars. They've got plans and we've currently got Mars rovers up there. This In Sydney, they've got a Mars yard, so you get to actually drive little robots with little tablets around this fake Mars landscape. So it's getting people ready for the next 20 years when hopefully humans are going to put probes back on Mars with humans. And why is it important to get people engaged with the concept? I mean, there's there's so much about this which is based in education for the broader mm. public that aren't necessarily, you know, scientists. Yeah, well, teachers are absolute heroes for me. I go into schools and uh, I know what an amazingly great job they do with kids, but there's so much in the curriculum now that I think teachers need help with extra stimulus outside of school so kids can really get excited about the deep knowledge that we're learning every year, year on year as scientists, new discoveries being made. We've got to keep people up to date and that's what we're trying to do in National Science Week. Just before we kind of end, scientists have been on a bit of a mission in the last period of time. We've had a lot on the program talking about communicating better, right? Mm. So science is, is so fascinating and clearly very important to everything we do, but it has been communicated pretty badly historically. Mm. Do you think you've turned that corner now? I, I actually think you have because yeah. I feel like people like you are just making it sing. Is that happening more and more? Yeah. I'm in my mid-30s and when I was at uni, there was no email, no internet. Really, we just had a guy with a blackboard and that was boring as hell. It was only because I loved physics, I loved astronomy, I was deeply interested in it that I actually stuck it out. And now at university, they've got amazing interactive experiments, they've got tablets, uh, live live interactions in the classroom. So I think with social media as a sort of vector, we're democratising science, we're being able to tell real scientists, being able to tell the general public what they're doing day on day, and really humanise it, humanise really difficult subjects. So it's, it's real, it's a real pleasure can imagine it is. It's been so good to have you in. Thanks for coming in. It's been wonderful. Thank you. That's Dr. Lisa Harvey-Smith. She's an astronomer with the CSIRO. Now, we'd like to thank Radio National and Dr. Lisa Harvey-Smith for the permission to rebroadcast that clip. And if any of our listeners would like to subscribe on iTunes to RN Drive, it's a great program. Go to tinyurl.com forward slash Drive, all lowercase, all one word. And now we're going to cross back to Tavir to hear all about pulsars from Nadezhda.
Welcome back, Nadezhda. That was very interesting, Brendan. I wish we had Science Week as well. Well, stick around, Nadezhda. At the end of this episode, I'll be giving some details of some of the events that are being held. But meanwhile, tell us all about pulsars, please. I think everyone that's done a little bit of science has heard of pulsars and quasars and magnetars. Very true. I think we'll leave quasars and magnetars for another episode, Brendan. But today, we focus our radio telescopes in on pulsars. Susan Jocelyn Bell was born in Northern Ireland in 1943, but went by the name Jocelyn. Her father was an architect and an avid reader. Through his books, Jocelyn was introduced to the world of astronomy. Her family and the staff of the Arma Observatory, which was near her home, encouraged her interest in astronomy. Jocelyn Bell's parents were strongly believing in educating women. At her first high school, she, like other girls, was not at first permitted to study science until her parents protested against the school's policy because the girls' curriculum only included such subject as cooking and cross-stitching rather than science. When she failed the examination required for students wanting to pursue further education in British schools, her parents sent her to a boarding school to continue her education. Here she was inspired by her new physics teacher, a Mr. Tillock, who told her, you don't have to learn lots and lots of facts. You just learned a few key things, and then you can apply and build and develop from these ideas. Susan said he was a really good teacher who showed her how easy physics was. In 1965, she graduated from the University of Glasgow with a Bachelor of Science degree majoring in physics. And in 1969, she was awarded her PhD degree from the University of Cambridge. Bell's first two years at Cambridge were spent assisting in the construction of a four-acre radio telescope that operated at 81.5 megahertz and was used to track quasars. Over 120 meters of chart paper produced by the telescope every four days. You might remember, Brendan, that these pen chart recorders were the same as the ones used by Karl Jansky. Yes, Nadezhda, when he discovered the center of the universe. Very funny, Brendan. Now getting back to Dame Jocelyn Bell. The markings on the chart paper. These markings were made by a radio source too fast and too regular to be a quasar. Although the signal source took up only about 3 centimeters of 122 meters of chart paper, Jocelyn Bell recognized its importance. She had detected the first evidence of a pulsar, and for a short time they thought they might be coming from an extraterrestrial civilization. When they were not sure what caused the signals they detected, Jocelyn Bell and her colleague advisor Anthony Hewitt labelled the signal LGM for Little Green Men. They thought it could possibly be a beacon from an alien source. Brendan, I really don't understand this obsession with aliens. Anyway, Jocelyn quickly quashed this idea and moved the fact to reality. 
In February of 1968, New Zealand. Further studies by groups of astronomers around the world identified the stars. These objects, first noticed by Jocelyn Bell, became known as pulsars. So, she was a PhD student who made a brilliant discovery by noticing and investigating an anomaly in her idea. The Nobel Prize, however, for this discovery did not go to her. It went to her PhD supervisor, who just happened to be male. All too familiar story, isn't it, Mr. Crick and Mr. Watson? <laughs> yes, Nadezhda. That reminds me of a joke where a lecturer asks the biochem undergraduates, does anyone here know what Crick and Watson discovered? A student from the back of a room calls out, Rosalind Franklin's notes. Sad but very funny, Brendan. Now, what exactly are pulsars, Nadezhda? The term pulsar is an abbreviation for pulsating radio star. Hold on. I'll just play you a recording of a pulsar. I can see how they thought that was aliens. Brendan! Each pulse is made up of radio waves of different frequencies, just as white light is made up of all the different colours of the spectrum. So the highest frequencies of a pulse arrive at an antenna slightly before the lower frequencies. The reason for this is that the pulse has been travelling through the interstellar medium, that space between the pulsar and the Earth, and the different frequencies making up the pulse travel at different speeds through this medium. You see, space isn't actually empty, Brendan. The pulses that occur at regular intervals correspond to a beam being emitted from a rotating neutron star. The time between pulses, the period, is the time that it takes for the neutron star to rotate once. The most likely explanation, Occam's razor, is that the pulsar is a neutron star that spins rapidly and emits radio waves along its magnetic axis. However, the beams from such neutron stars may never pass the Earth and so will never be detected. There are two main types of pulsar, the ordinary pulsar and millisecond pulsars. They can be explained by assuming that all of the millisecond pulsars were originally in orbit with another star. After the pulsar formed, matter was pulled from the companion star onto the pulsar. During this process, the pulsar rotates faster and faster until it became one of the millisecond pulsars. Nobody is quite sure what happens, what exactly happens to a pulsar as it ages and slows down. And this continues to be a very exciting field of research for astrophysicists, Brendan. Further reading for our listeners is the best webpage I could find is actually from your CSIRO. 
Okay, I'll make a tiny earl for that for our listeners, Nadeshta. Um, I'll call it tinyearl.com forward slash astrophyspulsars. All one word, all lowercase, as usual. Thank you, Brendan. To finish up, Dame Susan Jocelyn Bell is currently Professor of Astrophysics at the University of Oxford. Thank you, Brendan. See you next week. Thank you, Nadeshta. Dosvidanya. Dosvidanya, Brendan. And now we cross over to Adelaide to talk to Dr. Ian Musgrave from Astroblogger. Hello, Ian. Hi, Brendan. How's it going? Very good, thanks. Did you have a good time this morning? How did you go with the open day? Very interesting for me. I'm not so sure it was quite as interesting for my son to see the setup that was used to record a lot of the music for Doctor Who in the 60s. In fact, the person who did the music for Doctor Who in the early 60s came out and worked at the University of Adelaide for some years after that. Fantastic. And also some of the sounds of radio astronomy. That sounds really good. Very good. It's been a huge week for science this week. We've had news of LIGO. There might be black holes discovered as dark matter. We've had Mm. mystery objects that alleged Dyson Sphere. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tabby Star is back in the news. There's also a story about extragalactic radiation, a tiny bit to blame for your sunburn. (laughs) It's National Science Week this week, and there's lots of things happening in that. I'll cover that in the news, but just to foretell a bit of that, there's another Science Week event looking for ice on Mars, and that's happening at Mile End South in South Australia. That's in your neck of the woods. It is indeed. There's a Lost in Science trivia night happening in Collingwood down in Victoria. There's a Mars rover simulation and that's happening at Mount Isa in the middle of outback Queensland. Brian Cox is over in Hindmarch in South Australia and so many interesting things happening. But first, can you give us a brief summary on your week at Adelaide University? The usual things of reading, reviewing, attempting to write. Uh, one of my uh, PhD students is going to give uh, her first PhD talk next week, and so we've been uh, practicing her talk. One of my other PhD students is about to start uh, his work, and he's been uh, getting ready to grow cells, which has it's had a different uh, problem that the cells haven't grown at all. And uh, I've been giving lectures. Uh, last Friday, I gave an interesting lecture on ethics. Uh, in research and looking at various uh, ethical issues to do with uh, plagiarism. Uh, So that was a a very interesting time for uh, those of you who are interested in this area in in the it's a, a lecture workshop and for my readings i gave the students two papers that were on the ethics of plagiarism and they one of the papers plagiarized the other <laughs> that's ironic very ironic now it's been a huge week for visual astronomy we've had the perseids this week can you Give us a recap on how the Perseids went and tell us about uh, what's happening in the skies this week, Ian. The Perseids were very interesting. If, if any of your listeners out there tried to do um, radio Perseids, uh, I, I was listening to uh, the radio Perseid radio meteor site and it looked like we got some very good uh, responses from the radio Perseids. I tried to create my own little radio meteor setup 
but Windows 10 has an issue with overwriting the, the drivers for my software to write radio, so I'll keep you updated over the over the, over the coming weeks on how I get around this. So the radio meteor sites came up with some very uh, good numbers. In terms of visual uh, meteor observations, it was very much a, a mixed bag. There were a variety of predictions for much higher rates this year because the dust cloud released one of the dust clouds released from the uh, the comet that called, that uh, creates the uh, Perseids had been affected by the gravity of Jupiter and we were expecting to get higher rates. Uh, one group of predictions centred around uh, 150 to uh, 160 um, uh, meteors per hour as the notional maximum you could possibly see. Uh, another group of predictions had a uh, predicted maximum of 200. Again. In a real life, you won't be seeing that number of meteors because that's a theoretical maximum if you've got perfectly clear skies, no obstructions down to the horizon, and the meteor showers directly over the head, overhead for the, most of the planet. The, the meteor showers never directly overhead, so you're going to see fewer. But it looked like there was, in fact, a very strong flurry of uh, around about 200 meteors an hour. But it was very, very limited in distribution, so there was some good meteors uh, towards the end of the evening for America. America, but the best rates were seen for a very short time over Europe. So there were some good rates seen in part of the United Kingdom but and, uh, and Europe, but nice, but not so good the rest of the world. If you go to the International Media Organization's uh, live uh, Perseid uh, site, which has the graph from the ongoing observations, you'll see that there's a very narrow peak for the Perseids. So a lot of people, you know, there have been a lot of hype about this is going to be the best meteor shower for ages and you know, this is going to be a Z, there's going to be 200 meteors an hour without mentioning that this was a theoretical maximum. And so there were quite a few people who were disappointed as opposed to the people who were disappointed because all they saw was cloud. There was quite a few of those people. But there, uh, for people who in a, in a narrow band in Europe, for a narrow band of time, they saw a quite amazing display. And once again, Ian, it's under-promise and over-deliver. <laughs> well, I, I think if we're coming back to the concept of science communication, a lot of the news sites fail to make the distinction between what ZHR, the zenithal hourly rate, is and what you're likely to see. Uh, I was interviewed for the Mackay Mercury because Mackay was going to have good rates in Australia. And I saw headlines, 200 metres per hour, then about right at the bottom of the article it says, and Dr Musgrave says, well, we probably see a meteor every five minutes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it can be quite tricky getting this across. But uh, I mean, with the, the, uh, the kind of Mercury article, at least they put it into an Australian context and that be what you're likely to see. Other places, you know, 200 meteors an hour, yay! And bench, not without mentioning it's one of the predictions and that it may be time limited and that the actual peaks may not correspond to when your site's dark. So in terms of science communication, I mean, the people who were generating this information were giving all the, all the, all the right caveats, but the, when it got out into the news media, those, all, those, all of those caveats got dropped out. Or people may just read the headlines and fail to read the bits that come after it. This comes back to also what, we're going to, what we talk about in visual and radio astronomy as well, is that um, you have to be very careful about communicating and people get really excited. And I get, of course, I get really excited. But and unless then, you try and locate it, uh, your excitement in what people will actually see, then it can be quite misleading. Yes, the two main attributes of science are usually not mentioned in any journalistic story about a particular event. And those two things are patience and persistence. If you don't have those two things, then science doesn't work at all. That is correct. Persistence, patience, and going out there and trying again. 
Now, what's happening in the next couple of weeks up in the sky? Okay, in the next couple of weeks, coming back to patience and persistence, uh, as your listeners may remember, we've got some really fantastic planet dance in happening at the moment where Jupiter, Mercury, Venus, Mars and Saturn are all moving about in the sky. Well, actually, Saturn's not moving very much, but um, Jupiter, Mercury, Venus and Mars are moving from night to night and putting on a great show with a variety of patterns. And, of course, if you've been going out most nights, really, sky around here has been covered in clouds so you've got to wait. We've got the full moon coming up too which may interfere with some easy viewing of the planet. Well actually I'll, I'll get back to that in a moment because that's actually quite interesting. Got out at 10.30 at night and the sky was crystal clear and the moon was close to the triangle that was made of by um, and Antares, the rival of Mars, Mars itself and Saturn. But because the moon's relatively bright it washes out the dimmer stars so the triangle was actually really clear, and it was almost a perfect equilateral triangle. It was, it was beautiful to see. Fantastic. And, and this brings me to what you're going to be seeing uh, over the, the next week or so. Uh, if you've been paying attention to um, Mars, Saturn, and Atari, you'll be noticing that Mars has been edging closer to those two. And it will continue to do that for the coming week, accumulating on uh, Wednesday the 24th in Australian time, where Mars is directly between Antares and Saturn, and that's going to look really, really cool. So, um, but that, that occurs close to the last quarter moon, so you won't really have the moon interfering. But uh, the uh, full moon in Australia is on the 18th, uh, and so it'll wash out all the um, all the dimmer stars. But you'll find that because the planets are so bright, it's really quite easy to, uh, to pick them out. Now it'll be easier than ever to pick up the triangle formed by Mars, Antares, and um, Saturn. Okay. Of course, uh, in the early evening, uh, you're going to be looking at the horizon where you'll be watching um, uh, Venus, Mercury, and Jupiter. Now, for the past few weeks, Venus, Mercury, and Jupiter have almost been in a straight line. What you'll be noticing now is that Mercury's uh, starting to get towards overtaking Jupiter, but it's also angling away from Jupiter. So so, uh, Venus, Mercury, and Jupiter... Uh, form this this start forming a triangle. Uh, Mercury is the, it's furthest from the sun as 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 we see it um, on the seventeenth, um, and it's also uh, it's highest above the horizon because of the angle of the ecliptic at various times. Um, quite often, uh, even when Mercury is very far from the sun, it's not very far from the horizon, so it can be very very difficult to see. But this year. Um, if the, for this evening viewing, it's really quite high. Uh, it'll be visible uh, coming close to astronomical twilight, so, and because it's quite close to Jupiter, and if this is your best time to identify Mercury, because most people, like, Venus is easy because it's so bright. Jupiter's pretty easy because it's next bright. But Mercury, um, because it's, uh, it's, it's only in the sky for a very short time in the evenings when most people look, and it's often very close to the horizon, it's hard to pick up. But this time, Mercury would be very easy. Watch, uh, watch over the, the coming nights, you'll see Mercury and Jupiter come closer. And for the uh, rest of the of the coming week, Mercury and Jupiter will be quite close. Uh, and so you'll have this beautiful triangle of Venus, Jupiter and, and Mercury, with Mercury and, uh, and Jupiter about, uh, about a hand span apart in the sky. So for anyone out there, if you've spent a whole lifetime and never seen Mercury, now is the time to go out and see it. 
very definitely. Okay, and when we've got groups of stars or when we've got constellations, we name them in a particular way. Could you explain how we decide which one's Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon? Why do we name them in that order? We name that in that order because ancient Greeks and Arabs thought it was a good idea. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, That that sounds a bit flippant, but uh, I'll explain. Typically... Uh, we name, we uh, identify stars by these, uh, by letter numbers in order of brightness. So, for example, the Southern Cross. Acrux is Alpha, Alpha Crucis, and it's the brightest star. Then Mimosa, Beta Crucis, is the next brightest star. Then Gamma Crucis is the next brightest star. So it goes in order of the Greek alphabet, and Delta Crucis is quite dim. And we will have to also talk about the evolution of stars. We've got a lot to cover over the next 12 months, Ian. Well, we certainly have. Well, very good, Ian. Well, thank you very much once again. Okay, and uh, we'll catch you next week. Cheers. Cheers, Ian. Bye now. And here is the Astrophys News for the 17th of August, 2016. The news is in two parts this week. First, National Science Week Roundup, and then the global Astrophys News. Science Week Roundup. Here's just a sample from the smorgasbord of over 2,000 events happening all over Australia. Tomorrow, Thursday, 18th of August, cinema is happening in every state. The Science Film Festival showcases not only the best, but also the diversity of science films from across the globe. Next. The universe's zoo, from quarks to black holes, how well do we understand the universe? That's at the Ross Lecture Theatre in the Physics Building, 245 Crawley in West Australia. The standard model of elementary particle physics will be introduced, starting from our bodies, going to atoms, quarks and all other particles of the standard model, commenting on their characteristics and peculiarities. That reminds me that our second episode of Astrophys featured Dr. Tom Browder, and he introduced us to two very important ideas. Firstly, that by studying the very small, in this case, he's studying the particular colours of quarks at the Bell 2 project at the Super Keck B Collider in Japan. And secondly, that particle physicists are now talking of replacing the notion of the standard model with core theory. Tom alluded to the work of Frank Wilczek, who is an American theoretical physicist, mathematician and Nobel laureate. He's currently Professor of Physics at the MIT and a professor at Stockholm University. He proposes we move from the standard model to what he calls core theory. And he says this change is more than justified because, firstly, model connotes a disposable, makeshift, awaiting replacement by the real thing. But the core theory is already a very accurate representation of physical reality, which any future hypothetical real thing must take into account. Secondly, standard connotes conventional and hints at superior wisdom, but he argues no such superior wisdom is available. And mountains of evidence attests to that while the core theory will be supplemented and augmented, its core will persist. That was a nice little tangent. Let's get back to National Science Week. Thirdly, 
2016 Astrofest Astrophotography Exhibition. That's on at West Australian Museum in Geraldton in West Australia. The 2016 exhibition showcases the superb accomplishments of 20 talented West Australian astro images to record stunning astronomical landscape images in locations throughout Western Australia and beyond. Four, as Dr. Lisa Harvey-Smith mentioned earlier in the show, the Interactive Collider exhibition is on in the Powerhouse Museum in Ultimo in Sydney, New South Wales. You're invited to come on a journey inside the largest scientific experiment ever constructed. Buried deep under the border between Switzerland and France, CERN's Large Hadron Collider is the work of 10,000 men and women from across the globe. That show continues until September 30. 5. National Science Week competition. That's at Tamin Min College in Humpty Doo, Northern Territory. Yes, international listeners, Australia does have a town called Humpty Doo. The exhibition is a science and technology competition which allows students to be acknowledged for the effort they've put into making science projects, and that's judged by members of the community. So go along if you just happen to be in Humpty Doo. 6. Brian Cox, last chance to get his show, Journey into Deep Space. Professor Brian Cox is presenting his final live stage show entitled A Journey into Deep Space Tonight, and that's at the Riverside Theatre in Perth, West Australia, tomorrow night, Thursday the 18th. 7. The Observer Effect. National Science Week exhibition is on tomorrow also at 5.30pm in Melbourne in the Swinburne University of Technology in John Street in Hawthorne. It's free and it's an exhibition working with astronomer and Dean of Science who we recently interviewed, Professor Sarah Madison. She uh, was interviewed in Episode 4 of Astrophys. She's been working with artist Leslie Eastman. 8. Wildlife Spotter. Help save threatened species and preserve Australia's iconic wildlife. Become a citizen scientist and assist researchers by looking for animals in tens of thousands of wilderness photos taken by automatic cameras around Australia. There are 563,000 images completed so far. There's 682,000 animals identified and there's 23,000 citizen scientists working on this project, you can win a camera. Join in. Anyone can join in and you can do it all online. Just Google ABC Wildlife Spotter. Many events go beyond this week. Just Google National Science Week to find an event near you. Now for the global astrophys news for this week. This first one is from sciencenews.org. The black holes that produced the first detected gravitational waves may have exotic origins in the early universe. When the Advanced Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, LIGO, glimpsed gravitational waves from two merging black holes, scientists were surprised at how large the black holes were, about 30 times the mass of the Sun. Inspired by this unusual findings, two papers published in Physical Review Letters proposed that the hefty black holes were born in the universe's infancy. Unlike run-of-a-mill black holes that we talked about last week, which form from collapsing stars, these supposed primordial black holes could have formed when dense regions of a very early universe 
collapsed under their own gravity, some theories suggest. If they exist, primordial black holes could also solve another puzzle, the identity of dark matter, the unknown source of mass in the universe that holds galaxies and galaxy clusters together. Primordial black holes could make up the universe's missing mass, an idea that counters the more popular theory that dark matter is made up of undetected particles. Watch this space, and I mean literally. But once again, we look forward to more peer-reviewed papers coming out. It takes more than two papers to convert an idea into a theory. Next up, building and using your own itty-bitty telescope using a discarded 70-centimetre satellite dish. People just give them away. You can use it to listen into the sun and learn some astrophysics in a real hands-on way. And it's a very popular project for science students all over the world from about year 8 up to about year 80. It's a project developed by the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in America. And just Google Itty Bitty Telescope. But for the best instructions I've seen, which give clear instructions with great photos in a logical sequence, including all the cheap and easily obtained parts for your little radio telescope, they can be found at tinyall.com forward slash astrophysrt. All one word, all lowercase. A great place to start for teachers or amateur radio astronomers. That's tinyall.com forward slash astrophysrt. Next, the astrophysics of sunburn. If you got a sunburn at the beach this summer, you can put 0.0000000001% of the blame onto radiation from beyond the galaxy. Every second, every square metre of Earth is bombarded by about 10 billion photons that originated beyond the Milky Way, according to a new study. The research team, led by Simon Driver, an astrophysicist at the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research in Australia, analysed data collected by a number of spacecraft, including NASA's Galaxy Evolution Explorer, the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, Spitzer Space Telescope and Hubble, and ESA's Herschel Space Observatory. So you got sunburned? Blame the aliens! Sorry, Nadeshda. I did promise I wasn't going to mention aliens. To finish off, I'm going to pour a little cold water on the biggest news of the week. This story is from fizz.org, which came via Der Spiegel and Universe Today. So it's a story that for the moment belongs into the science via press release category. Red flags all over the place, but my considered guess is we won't be talking too much about this in 12 months' time, but I do love being proved wrong. Here it is in all its breathless glory. I'll ask Dr Musgrave about this next week on Astrophys. Earth-like planet around Proxima Centauri discovered. The hunt for exoplanets has been heating up in recent years. Since it began its mission in 2009, over 4,000 exoplanet candidates have been discovered by the Kepler mission, several hundred of which have been confirmed to be Earth-like, that is, terrestrial. And of these, 
there are some 216 planets that have been shown to be both terrestrial and located within their parent star's habitable zone, a.k.a. the Goldilocks zone. But in what may prove to be the most exciting and to date, the German weekly Der Spiegel announced recently that astronomers have discovered an Earth-like planet orbiting Proxima Centauri, just 4.25 light-years away. Yes, in what is an apparent trifecta, this newly discovered exoplanet is Earth-like, orbits within its sun's habitable zone, and is within our reach. But is this too good to be true? Yep, I think so. So there's been a leak to the press. So the article goes on to state that the European Southern Observatory, ESO, will be announcing the finding at the end of August. Hold your breath. What's more, the folks at Project Starshot are certainly excited by the news. As part of Breakthrough Initiatives, a program founded by Russian billionaire Yuri Milner to search for intelligent life, with backing from Stephen Hawking and Mark Zuckerberg, Project Starshot intends to send a laser sail-driven nanocraft to Alpha Centauri in the coming years. Now, we'll have to wait till next week to find out what Dr. Sherbakov and Dr. Musgrave think of that breathless press release. See you next week. Radio Wave!